Welcome, welcome everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by the HockeyThinkTank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. What an episode we have for you guys here today. We are bringing on the head coach of the University of Vermont, Todd Woodcroft, and this was an awesome conversation. Todd grew up in the Toronto area, comes from a really big hockey family. Both of his brothers have coached at the professional level or continue to coach at the professional level. Uh, Todd got his start coaching professional hockey as a video coach, actually, for the Minnesota Wild. He's gone on to either coach or scout for a bunch of different NHL teams that include the Wild, the Washington Capitals, the Los Angeles Kings, the Calgary Flames, and the Winnipeg Jets. He's also been a coach internationally in Russia for the KHL, in Belarus, the World Championships, Sweden, the World Championships, uh, and also uh, with Team Canada as well. So he is obviously very well-traveled, a lot of different perspective. This was an awesome conversation. But before we do get over to Todd, let's bring on the talent of the podcast, Jeffrey Lavecchio. Vex, what's up today, my man? Not going to lie to you. I've had a bit, of a, a bit of a quarter chub all day since you texted me this morning that this very podcast we are talking on right now has now hit over a half a million downloads. <laughs> it's pretty exciting, man. So I'd like pretty to cool. take this moment to be serious for a second, which I don't do often, and thank everyone listening. Seriously, from the bottom of my heart, I'm going to speak for Tope as well, from the bottom of Topher's heart. Uh, we're really, really excited that we get to continue to do this. Um, that we now have sponsors that want us to do this <laughs> and that you guys continue to listen to us week after week, share us, you know, put us on your social medias, uh, talk to your friends who, who might have something to offer to our podcast. That's how we get a lot of our guests. It's either someone Toph knows, someone I know, a friend of a friend, or we've had probably 20 to 30 guests on of a listener messaging us saying, hey, I think so-and-so would be great for your podcast. This is who he is or she is. This is what they've done. I think that they could really help the listeners. And we message them. If it's somebody we really think would help you, the listener, and us get smarter and, and better. So just seriously, I just want to take a second to say thank you to all of you for, uh, for this accomplishment because it's not just ours. It's, it's yours as well. So thank you. Very exciting for us. Yeah, very grateful. I think grateful is a good word for it. Uh, when we started this thing, we had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> Still kind of don't have any idea what we're doing. We just get some really cool people to come on the podcast and, and talk about a ton of different things. And we learn a lot from from our guests. We learn a lot, too, just from having interaction with everybody that listens, too, and that that reach out to us, whether it's email or, or social media or whatever it may be. So um, we're having a blast doing this. I've said this all the time. It's the best part of my week getting the chance to do this. And uh, the fact that we've had our podcast downloaded half a million times now, I mean, uh, I don't know. It's kind of cool. Honestly, it's absolutely wild. Like, I knew people would listen to you. Uh, you're a very smart human being uh, that I'm along, I'm along for the ride. And it's, it's been an awesome, awesome journey and I'm excited and, and want to get to half a million more. So we hit that one, one schmilly uh, downloads faster and sooner. That's my, that's my new goal now. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, this is, this has been fun. And, and this conversation was fun too, that we, uh, we just had with Todd. I mean, you, you just look at his resume and the people that he's been able to learn from and you'll hear from it on the podcast. He's coached underneath some pretty amazing people and, and worked with some pretty amazing people in management and, and to hear what he has learned from a lot of them and then how he's taken a lot of that and built his own, um, thing that he's doing out at Vermont right now. Uh, just very, very insightful stuff. Very, very interesting. Uh, what were some of the highlights for you coming out of that one? I mean, he said so many good things and I think whether you're a player trying to play college hockey, who better to listen to than a division one current college hockey coach. If you're trying to play pro who better to listen to than somebody who is choosing who gets drafted in the NHL as one of the scouts and, and video coaches and all these different places. And then coaches like who better to listen to than a division one college hockey coach and somebody who's been around who he talks about on the podcast, all of these unbelievable uh, um, treasured hockey minds. Uh, for me, like, I like how he approaches being a coach. I really like that. Um, I really liked how he said, you know, he does, he is basically, he's the sum of all of his experiences and the more successful people I listen to, the more I keep hearing that I've always kind of thought that as a trainer, a strength coach, I say, you know, people are like, what are your philosophies? And I was like, well, I don't really have one. I try and pull the best from all of my influences added to my own experiences and what I've learned and kind of put that into like one ever evolving, moving forward, always changing, malleable philosophy. And it sounds like, you know, he does that with coaching. And I, I really respect that, that, it, you know, he's not just married to one thing, you know, he's pulling from, from the best people he's learned from. And uh, I really like just the fun aspect. I love what he said about when he was a video coach and I wanted to go into it, but it kind of didn't flow with it. So I didn't interject there, but he talks about, you know, what he did as a video coach. And I hope a lot of the, I know we have tons of junior hockey coaches that listen to this. I hope you guys really listen to what he said that he used to do while he was an NHL video coach, because video going into video, you know, depending on what type of coach you are, depending on what type of team you are, a lot of guys check out when they go into video or they're super nervous to go into video. They think they're just going to get ratted on. They're just going to get exposed for a mistake they made. And that's not what it should be about. It should be about a learning experience. The mistake was already made. The game's over. You can't change it, but you can teach them what they did wrong and maybe get them to think about what they can do moving forward to bring themselves and also your team more success. And one way to do that is lighten the mood, you know, throw in a, a funny video clip in there, throw in a mutant fan saying something ridiculous about one of the players, you know, throw in the parent saying something funny, like that will lighten the mood. I come to video when people want to be somewhere, they will absorb and learn more. So I really, really like that. He said that. And I played for uh, Scott, who was a coach in the NHL for a while, like super winning coach in the AHL. I'm honestly not sure where he is now, but he did stuff like that. My first weekend in the AHL, I got a goal and assist first star in my first game. Not a big deal. I think it was a plus two maybe. Uh, but anyways, it, after that weekend, he came up to me for the video that he was going to put together for the following weekend. He did highlights from the weekend before to kind of pump the team up right before our next weekend's games. And he's like, Vex, what, give me your three favorite songs. And I was like, uh, uh, nervous. Like what? And I just like threw out like blink 22, damn it. And like all these, you know, other songs. And then those were the songs that he put into those video clips, you know, and he zoomed in on me scoring like, like, like it just made the video like more interesting, more fun. The guys are laughing about it. So like, I think that's a, a really big thing that we only touched on a little bit with him, but I hope that coaches listen to that. 
Yeah. Who was the coach that you said you cut out a little bit there for the uh, listeners? Scott, Scott Gordon in yeah. the AHL. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. There's an art to doing video as a coach. There's an art. We've had other coaches on here. You know, you're watching hours and hours of video and you got to put a presentation together. That's like five minutes. <laughs> and so you have hundreds of clips that you think are great to show certain players or the team as a whole and everything. And you got to cut like 97% of them <laughs> as, uh, as you go into to do it. And then when you can add a little bit of, yeah, because again, attention spans are short and, and guys, you're right. Guys can get nervous going into the video room. Just, Oh gosh, what's, you know, because they remember the stakes from the movie from the weekend before, Oh, is this one going to be on, on video on our Monday meeting and, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, that was, that was interesting to hear him talk about that. And that was back in the day when he was using VHS tapes. Now it's a little bit easier when you can download stuff and, and you got YouTube and everything's kind hold of back. The fast forward button to like get <laughs> to a, a certain mistake. And, yeah. and talking about that too, like you just said, and, and I hope players aren't feeling this way anymore, but I'm sure there's a lot of teams where they are. I literally would like, as soon as I made a mistake in a game in junior hockey, we've talked about how I don't agree with my junior hockey coaches philosophies and how we manage players, how we treated players, stuff like that. I would literally make a mistake. And in that moment during a USHL game, I would go, Oh my God, that's probably going to be on video. And I'd be nervous for it to be on video for the next, however many days until it got to video. And then I'm going into video sweating because I knew I'm just going to get carved up. Like, do you think that, allowed me to play freely and just think and just focus on playing like absolutely not so coaches like teaching clip or you know teaching moment like I don't know for what it is like maybe think about how you approach your video yeah it's a little bit different than Todd's philosophy he wants to be he wants to have fun right he wants to keep it loose and um yeah it's really really fun getting the chance to to get inside his uh his philosophies of, of coaching and and hockey and and you know obviously he tells some tells some awesome stories from getting to work with guys like Paul Maurice and Mike Babcock and Dean Lombardi people who've won Stanley Cups upon Stanley Cups and and uh yeah this was a fun one this was a fun one for sure yeah he's a beauty he's a coach I would love to play for so any coaches that are that are, uh, or any players looking in juniors, you know, looking for a D1 school, might have just jumped towards the top of your list. <laughs> UVM. <After> Western Michigan. <laughs> I was very close to going to UVM. I, uh, I took a visit out there and absolutely loved it. And then a week later, the head coach stepped down. <laughs> so, and then by the time uh, the new coach came in, uh, Kevin Sneddon, um, I had already committed to go to Cornell because I went on a visit there and loved it there too. So um, awesome spot. Um, but uh, yeah, this, this was a fun conversation. We'll get right over to there. Before we do get over there, we want to thank our title sponsor, Gel Sticks. G-E-L-S-T-X.com. Use the coupon code THINKTANK, one word, and you can get a discount on some awesome training weighted sticks. Jeff uses them in his gym. The NTDP uses them. NHL teams use them. College teams use them. Junior teams use them. So um, they're a great product, a great company that uh, are trying to add a lot of positivity to the hockey world, just like we are. One thank Train Heroic which is Jeff's training app, go to your telephono and download the train heroic app today and find uh, Jeff Lavecchio's workouts. There's a bunch of different ones on them. Uh, and thank you to ice hockey systems, which is our new drill sponsor and the drill that we want to talk about today. Very simple one, very simple one, but a very good one. And for a couple different reasons, I like to call this drill, the three regroup three on two. 
And it's very, very simple in the fact that basically you start with three forwards on the red line, uh, one set of D on one side of the blue line, one side of D on the other blue line, and you regroup one, go to the other D, regroup again, go to the D you just went on first, regroup again, and then go three on two on, uh, on the two D uh, that you regroup with just the one time. And the reason why I think this is a really good drill is because I don't think youth hockey teams pass the puck very well in the neutral zone at all. I think it's, it's something in watching a lot of youth hockey, even in watching a lot of junior hockey, I honestly think the teams that pass the puck the best are the ones that win. And this is a drill where you really have to execute on your passing specifically in the neutral zone. If, whether you want to go right up, whether you want to go D to D, whether you want to fill lanes, whether you want to switch lanes, you can do whatever you want to do as a coach throughout the neutral zone, but you have to execute on a lot of passes for the drill to go right. And so you regroup one, regroup two, regroup three, and then you go down three on two and you can do whatever your three on two principles are uh, with that. The other thing that I think it's good for too is that for the defense, once you regroup and you get the puck up to the forwards, you have to get up a little bit because one, you might be jumping up in the play, but you know, if the play's coming back, you're up and it's like muscle memory for gaps. So as soon as you give the puck up to the forwards, we got to make sure we're getting up. So our gaps are good defensively um, or we're jumping up in the play offensively. So it's a pretty decent drill um, for that. And then uh, you can make a little competition out of it. Maybe go black versus white, two different colors for your team. Uh, but again, passing the puck through the neutral zone is something that not a lot of youth players do very well. Um, but I think it's so, so important. And, and I think I've told this story on the podcast before, but I remember sitting, I was recruiting out in Victoria, BC, and I'm sitting next to Brett Larson, who at the time, I believe he was an assistant coach with uh, Ohio state, or maybe he was with Duluth at the time, but now he's the head coach at St. Cloud. And it was kind of a nothing game. It was in the preseason and the game wasn't very good. We weren't going to get a lot out of it recruiting wise. So we were just kind of talking hockey and, and he said, okay, I want you to watch for something. So I was like, okay. He goes, watch for every time that there are three passes made in a row, tape to tape and watch what happens. And I was kind of like, huh, okay. So I'm watching it and it very rarely happened. <laughs> you know, this is a junior hockey game and it very rarely happened where there were three legit tape to tape passes in a row. But the best part about it is when there were three tape to tape passes in a row, almost always it led to a shot on goal or a scoring chance. And so it just kind of like, I've always harped on passing in, on this podcast. I'm such a big believer in passing and I really think it can separate players to, to the next level, just based upon the ability to execute in the past, but also the ability to think the game and to get into spots uh, where you're supporting the puck as well and receive passes. And uh, it was just kind of like almost proof in the pudding of how important passing is because it was, it was crazy. Just like mind work, um, how three passes tape to tape, Shot on goal or scoring chance. Great. It was nuts. A hundred percent. And we've talked about this too before, I think like, I'm sure maybe a little bit of the problem with youth passing now too, and probably tricking, trickling all the way up now is that all, everything is power edge pro only and focus on only individual skills. So there's not a lot of passing and skill practices, practices, stuff like that. So this is a great drill to add in so that they're getting in a lot of passing reps. For sure. Yeah. And you can work on whatever kind of tactics you want as a coach coming through the neutral zone or on your three on twos, whatever it may be, you can add to it too. maybe add a back checker that's standing at the blue line. So once they do their third regroup, you can add a back pressure to make it more of a three on two with some pressure 
Um, you can do some different things with it to add on. Um, but yeah, just, uh, just a simple, simple drill, uh, pretty easy to draw up <laughs> for, for, uh, for the players. And, uh, again, a lot of execution on passing on that one. So thought we'd throw that one out there. And now with that, let's get over to this awesome conversation. We had a lot of fun with this one. And so without further ado, here we go with Todd Woodcroft. We are so excited to have on this episode of the podcast from the beautiful city of Burlington, Vermont, Todd Woodcroft. Todd, how are you doing today? Afternoon, gentlemen. If you're excited, it must be sweeps week uh, with <laughs> me on the show here. It's, it's you know, I'm, not surpri- I'm, I'm surprised you're going to get any listeners with me as your guest, but I'm happy to be here. Thank you. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. This is going to be a good one. I'm looking forward to this one big time and uh, we'll get to it a little bit later on the podcast, but I was very close to becoming a catamount actually. Um, was, well, we, we, uh, we thought that was a watershed moment. And when this, ter- when this turned around that we got positive is when you didn't become part of the catamounts. <laughs> here. So, that was, that was the time when we knew that this team was going to take off in the right direction. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I like it. Well, well, good stuff. We'll get into that uh, in a bit, but uh, you know, just to kind of introduce you um, for some of the people that listen to the podcast who might not know who you are. Um, you know, you grew up in Ontario, I believe, and come from a big hockey family. Um, you know, what, what was it that got you uh, falling in love with the game of hockey, obviously living up in, in Toronto area and, and having a bunch of brothers that played and, and the family that's very involved in it uh, had to be something to do with it. But uh, what got you in love with this great game of hockey? Well, the word you used right there, Topher, was family. And, and I think that's the thing that uh, that really brings anybody into this game is this sense of family or coming from a family that was really involved in, in the sport. And, and uh, for me, it was our father. His name is Frank, and uh, he had been a really good uh, goalie grew up in a family of hockey players. My grandfather had coached my uncles. I had two uncles who were priests, priests who played for uh, a really interesting story called the flying fathers, which was a group of priests who played and were very competitive. And my dad had played with them, even though he wasn't a priest, obviously. And uh, then my older brother was an excellent, excellent player all the way up growing in Toronto. And this is the era um, when the, there was only really six teams at the elite AAA level. And, and uh, he had come up with guys like Adam Graves and Brennan Shanahan and Brian Marchman and Glenn Tabaracci and uh, Rick Tabaracci, Glenn Featherstone, all these guys, they just kind of all grew up together. Uh, and then to myself, a bunch of guys I grew up with are still, well, still in the game and had played an excellent NHL career, Mike Ricci, uh, you know, just a bunch of guys that were lucky enough to be around growing up. And then my younger brother, Jay, who's a coach with the Oilers organization, uh, kind of followed through our track. So our family was just kind of immersed in the game, uh, playing road hockey all the time, playing knee hockey in our uh, in our living room, much to my mom's uh, dismay, breaking China left and right. But that was just a typical Canadian middle-class family when I was growing up and and luckily enough all three of us are still in the game and my older brother coaches in uh, the KHL he's a head coach in Minsk and my younger brother as I mentioned is a head coach in Bakersfield for Edmonton's farm team and and I'm lucky enough to be uh, the head coach at the University of Vermont. 
That's amazing. And uh, as all of us sitting here right now, we we know that we couldn't get to the places that we've gotten to without that support system. As as a head coach now at Vermont, and you've coached in some amazing places, and obviously having some people in your family like your brothers who have sat in similar chairs that you have, how important is those relationships that you have with them in going through the ups and downs of of what a coaching career entails? Because uh, even though even though they're pretty cool chairs to be sitting in. It ain't easy. And so how, how important is that uh, support system that you have? Well, I, I think the idea again of family is such an important one to being a coach, whether it's with your team or with your staff, you need people to tell you the truth all the time and you need to have trust and trust is something I've found in my experience that really comes from honesty, that really comes from consistency, that comes from love And when you're able to tell your brothers, say, I disagree with you, or maybe you weren't right in that situation, or if you're just someone to be able to be a sounding board, listen, to share experience, both my brothers are way more experienced head coaches than than I am. uh, And I lean on them quite heavily in in all different aspects of the game. And of course, they lean on me for different things too. Um, Coming from being an assistant coach so long, they were able to ask me, what would an assistant coach think in this situation, for example? So... It's been a great journey for all three of us. It was uh, culminated in uh, world championships in 2015. We were three guys coaching three different countries. I was with uh, Switzerland and my younger brother, Jay, was with on that Canadian team that never lost the game. And then my older brother was with Team Belarus. So it was kind of funny for us to all be at the world championships, three brothers in three different countries. So my parents didn't know what golf shirts or hats or track suits to wear during the games we played each other. <laughs> that's so cool. Well, yeah, it's, it's really cool to be able to lean on each other. How about you like now getting your head first head coaching job? Um, I think there's a lot of, I know there's a lot of college coaches that listen to this just based upon the fact that, uh, you know, I still interact with a lot of them and stuff. And I think every assistant coach at some point, hopes to be a head coach someday um, and, and really run a ship of their own. What have you learned so far um, getting to be in the head coaching position that maybe, I don't know if surprise you is, is the right word, but you know, just something that uh, something that kind of came out there like, Oh, wow. Um, I got this head coaching job. Now it's a little bit different. <laughs> I, I've learned. Well, first of all, we would need 75 hours of stuff that I've just <laughs> learned being around people that I'll never be as smart as and, and I and I'm glad I'm glad of that because I've been around some really elite uh, people, some really elite coaches, uh, Jacques Lemaire, uh, Joel Quenville, Mike Babcock, Glenn Hanlon, uh, Dave Lewis, and then really the biggest influence for me has been Paul Maurice and and what I've learned from Paul and from Mike and and. One of my favorite people in the world is a guy named Jamie Compon. If you're ever lucky enough to get him on your podcast, you'd, you'd learn so much from him and from Paul and from Jamie, especially learning that you're never complete as a coach. You're, you're a sum of all the influences of the people who've been around you for sure. And I've taken a little piece of everybody. And still to this day, I talk to Paul very often and, and he'll always end the call with just, just be yourself. Like, you know, just, just be you. And I'm a little bit, you know, uh, maybe more on the fun, try to be fun and have a, a light attitude around the locker room because I firmly believe that uh, you're not going to win anything unless you enjoy what you do for a living and, and they go hand in hand. And, and I guess to answer the question, like what I've learned is that I'm always going to be learning. Uh, this, this is a craft just like any other craft. And if you're not 
constantly working to get better at it, constantly doing things like listening to podcasts or attending seminars or watching head coaches of different sports, how they handle the media, how other sports train, you know, what is the women's basketball team doing here at UVM? What is the rugby team doing? And, you know, if you're a rugby fan at the All Blacks or what the premiership soccer teams are doing, how they're constantly evolving, constantly getting better. I don't think you're going to have much of a shelf life as an elite coach unless you figure out a way to learn from all different aspects. And it doesn't just have to be sports. We, we brought on some guest speakers to our team this year that have nothing to do with sports. We brought a master violinist, a world-renowned violinist named Kai Kite, who came in has been spent four sessions with our team and just talking about the idea of mastering and how to be the best at what you can be and getting out of your safe spot. And it all equates to hockey, just like it would equate to, to soccer or to football or to curling or rugby or dance or whatever it is your craft is. To me, that's what it's going to be to be in a coach is to figure out pretty fast that you don't have all the answers and you better get as many different uh, influences as you can in your life. Wow. I absolutely love that. I really hope that young coaches listen to that. What he just said, like for me too, I totally believe in that. Like taking from basketball coaches, I tell my, I had a conversation this morning about talking to my guys in the gym at, at 6 5 AM, how important sleep is. And I didn't point to hockey players. I pointed to JJ Watt because I've watched videos on him. He's got his own king size mattress in their equipment room. Uh, down in Texas, because if he needs to take a nap, he just goes in there, hides behind, you know, under the stadium and takes a two hour nap. And like, he's known for, for doing all these extraordinary things with his body. And it's because he focuses on his sleep so much. And that's not a hockey player, but I'm talking to hockey players. So I totally believe in that. I love that. I love the violinist thing. I want to go back to something you said, because I think that a lot of coaches, younger coaches who like just watch older hockey, junior hockey, uh, or maybe played when they were younger and, and times were a little bit different with how coaches approach the game. You said I'm more on the fun side. I like to keep the locker room light. Can you kind of go into what that means for you, you personally, what does that mean? I, I think that it means that you have to be yourself. So my nature in general is just to always be smiling. So I didn't have a lot of success in some Eastern European countries over there because smiling sometimes is uh, seen as a sign of weakness um, or that there's something, you know, going on inside. <laughs> they hate this, smiling. They, they, yeah. It's like, and I would walk <laughs> around the streets of, you know, Minsk and smile at people and they would want to, you know, throw me in prison or something because you're, <laughs> you're smiling all the time, but that's just a cultural thing. But that's actually part of learning about players is different cultural aspects of when you're recruiting players, understanding that in some cultures they're taught, not to shake your hand firmly because that's a sign of disrespect or maybe not to look you in the eyes. I remember in some drafting stories, we would have uh, some Eastern European players and they didn't look you in the eye. And, you know, that player would walk out and you would think, gosh, that guy never looked me in the eye. We didn't have an understanding that culturally that was part of it. But for me, the, the fun the fun aspect of being a coach is that you really do have to enjoy what you do for a living because you're pouring your heart and your soul into something. And the fun you get from seeing players get better at something is very important to me. That's what I get fun from is seeing a player at UVM take a concept that one of the coaches has showed them and, and, and you can see some success in that player or you see excitement 
in the players at learning something new or trying something different or being part of the partnership that coaches have with players in their own development. So Jeff, you talked about, you know, sleeping here at UVM. We try to tell the players, if you're going to be a pro, you're responsible for all the details of your career. We're just here to fuel it. So how you eat, how you train, how you sleep, all those things are really your responsibility as a player. We're going to give you everything you need to get there, but I'm not going to walk you home and tuck you in at bed because I go to bed at like quarter after nine. So these guys are playing Xbox until probably at least 10 o'clock. And I'm sure I'm naive and it's probably even 10, 15, <laughs> but you know, for the, the fun aspect of it, it's also the non-hockey stuff, uh, who you are as a person. So we have a thing we do here at UVM and I stole it actually from my younger brother, Jay. It's, it's about each player has to get up and talk about their lives and talk about their why, why do you play? What do you do? And they do, a presentation on themselves and so much of it is funny like it's hilarious guys just taking shots at themselves and then you have to pass it off to the next person or the next staff member and that might be your equipment manager or the medical you know therapists it could be anybody on the team and it's usually something funny that you set up for that and then now everybody's waiting for that next presentation because someone else is going to have some fun and and there's so many different ways to do that. But I, I think when the players understand that you're a human, uh, that you're a guy too, that likes to have fun and smile. And it's not always just on the ice, having fun drills. It's walking around and having conversations and talking about TV shows or their families. You're getting to know your players, of course, which is a huge part of it. And your players get to know you as a human being too. And then I guess it all comes back to that idea of a partnership with your players. If they can see you have fun, they're allowed to have fun too. And again, in my experience, I don't think you're going to win many games unless you're enjoying what you do and having some fun. Yeah, no question. I mean, it's really cool to hear you talk about this stuff right now because you, you seem very much comfortable in your skin and being who you are. And that's what we kind of all aspire to be. But especially in coaching, that's not easy. It's, it's not easy. And for me, I, I think about my career as a coach and I always kind of struggled with that because I always kind of wanted to be the coach that I thought the players needed rather than be the coach that was authentically myself, which is essentially would have gotten the most out of the player in my relationship with them and all that kind of stuff. Like, did you have some ups and downs in trying to figure out who the best version of you are? Because again, I feel like a lot of coaches that would listen to this could really empathize with that. And I think struggle with that um, because we do, we want to be the best. It's why we get into coach and want to get the most out of people. We're passionate about it. We want to win. We want to do things the right way. And, and a lot of times that, that wanting to be the best maybe can take us off our course of what allows us to be the best, which is just being the best version of you. Um, so did you have some ups and downs in getting to this point where you're feeling comfortable with who you are as a coach and, and how did you kind of learn through some of those ups and downs as well? Well, I, you said it best yourself there, Tover, like why you get into coaching. So I, I think we get into coaching because you want to develop players. Like you want players to come into whatever sport you're playing and you want to get them from where they are to where they want to be at the end of their career or even on, to start the beginning of their professional career. But a big part of that is the human side of things, understanding that the rink really is a safe place for all hockey players, for example, or the soccer pitch or the football field or whatever it might be for a young lady athlete or a young male athlete. When you come there, this should be a safe place. It should be a fun place. 
I was lucky enough to come into Winnipeg as an assistant coach where Paul Maurice told me, I need you to be the hugger. I need you to be the connector with the young players and the older players and the connector of the, between the players and the coaching staff, because we had Paul Maurice and we had Charlie Huddy, we had Jamie Compon and Wade Flaherty. And I was the youngest guy, even though Paul is only like four years older than me, which is hard to believe. I hope he's listening. But if it's uh, the idea being that you do need the players to have a conduit to your coaching staff. And I did have lots of times where the conversations were not hockey. They were sometimes difficult conversations, listening to things that had been going on in players' lives. Sometimes it was empathy for them. Sometimes it was sympathy for them. Sometimes it was just a listening ear. And I think that's a big role of the assistant coach. And, and I remember Eric Spolstra, the coach of the Miami Heat, saying, uh, when you have an assistant coach and you are an assistant coach, you want to be the assistant coach you would want to have when you're a head coach. So all the stuff that goes into that, having the pulse of the team, taking the temperature of the locker room, understanding what the players need and what they don't need. And sometimes it's to put the gas down and sometimes it's to take the gas off. And obviously as an assistant coach, you do so much work that the head coach doesn't have to do. And a lot of the times it's solving problems that don't get to the head coach's table. But for me with the guys in Winnipeg, I just had a natural uh, connection with all of them. I don't know why. I'm certainly not more likable than anybody else and ask anybody that knows me and they would tell you that. But that, that group of players we had that had been having some success, the Adam Lowry's and Andrew Copps and Mark Shafley's and Blake Wheeler's and Dustin Bufflin and all those guys, they were such fun guys too. Patrick Laine, who I became very close with, uh, and I'm still very close with, they, they, they want to have fun. They want to come to the rink and have a great time doing what they do for the living. And the difference is those guys are making, you know, 7 million bucks, 11 million bucks or a million bucks or whatever it is. And the rest of the world playing this game that really it's a game for girls and boys to play. The NHL guys are the guys that make the money, but the vast majority of people playing the game and coaching the game are doing it for the right reasons. It's a game for girls and boys to play and for coaches to get better and to help those girls and boys to play. So I think if you can keep that attitude, you're going to have success. And whether that's you want to be a professional coach and you're, and you're chasing that dream or you're one of the millions of coaches who are doing it for the exact right reason, it's to help young girls and young boys to play this awesome game. That's where I had fun. And I think the players in Winnipeg, for sure, and all the national teams I've been on, I think I just had some energy and I would bring it and be a little bit goofy. But absolutely, there were times I'm thinking, why the heck did I do that? I remember, here's a good example for you, in the World Championships in 2015, coaching Team Switzerland, like, they weren't used to guys being themselves or just kind of being fun, I guess. And, and Mark Strite was a defenseman on that team. And, you know, Mark was probably 34, 35 years old. And I still consider Mark an excellent friend. We, we talk all the time. He's in Bern in Switzerland right now. And I remember in, uh, we all stayed at the same hotel and we would come down the escalator. So like seven teams every day would come down the escalator and come up the escalator and you'd all eat in the exact same spot. And, the organizers of the tournament decided they would put like a stick and some old equipment from like the 1920s and thirties and forties, like kind of glued to the 
like the wall. So when you come down this escalator, you'd see it. So I thought it'd be really funny to go down and steal the stick and then tape it and then write straight number seven on, on the, on the stick. And so all day long, everybody was coming down and seeing, and he didn't see it for like four days. And then finally like guys on the other teams and we were playing and we were like, Hey, we saw your stick. And he had no idea. Finally, he figured out what he what it was. And he came, you know, he came, he got me back in a different way, but for the barrier for coaches to see and players to understand too, that we're actually part of the team. We aren't the players. We aren't the locker room. We're an extension of it, but we want to have fun too. So I hope Mark's listening. Cause that was one of the, one of the funniest moments we've had in a long time. I'm sure on team Switzerland, every time I see him, he still points his finger at me and, threatens me so it's great and or is that a no shake hand country <laughs> um i will i want to ask you so you're a head coach now you've been an assistant coach you know it's funny you guys tope said you know most assistant coaches probably want to be a head coach i personally have always wanted to be if i was coaching only an assistant coach because i like to do more um micro versus macro like on the ice. And I feel like the head coach is kind of more of a macro guy. And then I could kind of be, be micro. And I also like to be the fun guy, you know, bring, bring the energy and stuff like that, where sometimes as a head coach, you're going to have to, you know, slam some D's in the door. You know, you're going to have to, you know, give them a wake up call every now and then. But uh, something that I've noticed being around youth hockey, which I think we have a lot of youth hockey coaches that listen to this is that, the head coach doesn't always have meetings with his assistant coaches and talk about, okay, I'm the head coach. So here's what I'm going to be doing. I want you guys to do this job, you know, assistant coach a, you're, I want you to focus on this assistant coach B. I want you focusing on this with when, as you as a head coach. Do you do that kind of thing? Do you delegate Do do you go to your assistant coaches at the beginning of the year and say, okay, so like, these are the responsibilities I'm going to focus on. These are your responsibilities. Or is it just, you guys are kind of going, you're all talking. So for like staffs listening, how do you go about deciding who does what between the, you know, two or three of you? Well, we're lucky enough at Vermont. So I have an unbelievable staff. I have Jeff Hill, who's an alumni of UVM and he's an assistant coach, Steve Wiedler. I know he's a friend of the program for you guys. One of the best workers and college coaches I've seen. We got Mark Stewart who has come on and he's learning how to coach, but he wants to work his tail off every single day. And then we got Mike Babcock, whose job is to kind of coach the coaches. And he comes in for seven, eight days a month and spends a lot of time with us. And at the very beginning of this whole process, when I was looking to, to hire the staff and then for Jeff Hill just to retain him on the staff, I gave them clear job descriptions. And the job descriptions, there was some overlap in them. And there was some overlap because we wanted to have a sense of community amongst the coaches. I didn't want to have the guaranteed final answer on everything. And we do have disagreements. And we do have times when they're not going to think what I believe is correct. And I'm not going to think what they believe is correct. But at the end of the day, when we walk out of the locker room uh, of the coach's locker room and into the player's locker room, we have to be a cohesive one voice. And when Mike Babcock was here just a couple of weeks ago, spending time with all of us, he, he actually pulled me aside. He said, you need to delegate more. And the way our setup is, is we have one huge office where all the assistant coaches sit. And then I'm kind of around the corner uh, just because our rink is being re, uh, uh, you know, reconfigured right now. And I'm kind of around the corner. So I come in and spend a lot of time there, but I miss all the joviality of the day-to-day -day stuff going on. The conversations where so many problems are solved just from having conversations 
or you get the feeling of what's going on in the team just because, you know, with, with Jeff and with Steve and with a uh, young man by the name of Eric Ellens, who's our video coach and Mark Stewart and Mike Babcock, that's a lot of voices in a room all sharing so many things. And if I'm not there all the time, I'm missing out on that. And one of the things I was missing out on was who does what all the time. And we were, we did have too much overlap. So Mike encouraged us and it's a great idea is we have a daily meeting at the exact same time every day. So we've adopted that process going forward. I knew it intrinsically from being in Winnipeg where every day we would meet at the exact same time. But as a head coach, I wanted to do a little bit more myself. And probably that's because I wanted to prove things or just want to outwork people. I think that's probably a natural instinct for most people. But like you said, Jeff, many people listening to this call, they don't have the luxury of having nine hours a day to talk about your team. You might be a bantam coach and you're selling real estate and maybe, you know, you might have 40 minutes before your practice to plan your practice. And then as soon as the game is over, everybody has to go home because you got to drive your kids back and they got to get up the next day and you got to go to work or you got to drive an hour and a half home, whatever it might be. So I think the lesson would be that you should find some time to visit as a staff, even if it's on the phone, even if it's on a Zoom or whatever it might be, so you can manage your message every day. What's the message we're going to bring to the team today? And that's going to change and it's going to evolve all the time. And then figure out what your process is, what your process is at coaching staff. What do you measure that's important to you? And you better be careful what you measure and what you share with the rest of the team because it, it better be correct. That's one thing. But if you have a staff like I'm lucky enough to have here, and I was so fortunate enough to be part of the staff in Winnipeg, everybody has a voice, which from Paul Maurice to give me a complete pigeon to come in and give me so much responsibility right off the bat and just gave me a voice that he just let me run with it. And that helped me figure out like you Jeff said you wanted to be an assistant coach that's all I wanted to be but then being around a man like Paul it evolved for me I wanted to be like Paul I wanted to take all the lessons I learned from Paul and all the other people I'd been around and all the coaches that I study and now I wanted to see if I was any smart and I guess time will tell on that one maybe we'll revisit this one in you know 2026 we'll see what happens <laughs> Well, one of the things that's really interesting about what you're talking about, I've always been a big believer in this is like a coaching staff needs to be its own little team in its own and, and do team building stuff, you know, like it's a, a living, breathing organism, just like a team is. So you have to do things that are going to gain some camaraderie with each other. You have to have the tough conversations, uh, in private. And then, like you said, be united, um, you know, when you go into the room with the team and stuff and do, do you put a lot of effort and, and with, you know, you mentioned all the great coaches that you've been able to coach with as well. Is that something that they've really um, tried to inspire within the group is that, Hey, we have to be a team. We have to, you know, manage our relationships here. We got to work together. We got a team build and all that kind of stuff, just like you would do with your own team. Well, look, I think you look at a team exactly like you said, microcosm, there's so many teams within a team. You have the defense, you have the forwards, you have the young players, you have the veterans, you have the assistant coaches, you have the whole coaching staff, you have the trainers, you have the medical, you have the PR, you have all these different teams. But if you have one common vision of the success of the team, 
and your message is the same from everybody, that's how I believe you're going to have success. If you can all agree on one thing, as long as it is important enough, your team is going to have success. And you need that from your medical, from your equipment, from your PR, from you know, your North Americans, your Europeans, you know, your Canadians, your Americans, your Russians, your Slovaks, whatever you might have, there's going to be naturally teams within teams. And you can see it, uh, not anymore because of COVID, but you can usually see it on a team when people go to dinner, who goes and eats together. And then you see one person who's by themselves and you say, hey, that person is by himself. Let's bring her along with us and then have her join our, our table tonight. And that's how you get the team idea going or this is a new person that just joined our staff let's bring that person in and make sure that they feel part of what we're trying to do so that's where I I thought Paul was elite is that he had a feeling of all the teams that were involved I, I don't think there was ever an idea that we had a leadership group in Winnipeg everybody has to be a leader you don't want a minority running the majority you want a majority running the minority so you want as many leaders as you can so I thought that was really cool from Paul that he empowered Charlie Huddy that guy's got you know five, he's got five cup rings he's coached 1500 games he's played 1500 games like you want people to gravitate to a guy like Charlie Huddy and then you take the D and he kind of runs the D and that's one team and then you got Jamie Compon who's a power play genius and player development genius and he takes all the skilled players and all the players who want to be skilled players and he kind of runs that team and then the rest of us just kind of fold in when we're talking about practices and it's it's an amazing thing to see it's almost like an orchestra right everybody's playing their own instruments and and I heard Kobe Bryant say that at one time it just basketball is kind of like that where everyone's playing their own instrument I know nothing about music zero we bring in this violinist and he talks about his role as the number one seat Kai's name's Kai Kite. And he talks about how everybody is playing their own music. Sometimes it's soft. Sometimes you're not playing. Sometimes it's loud, but if everybody is playing perfect music together, that's when you get that amazing orchestra music. So then obviously there's improvisation inside the game of hockey. And then, then usually in orchestras, maybe the ones Jeff were involved in, someone's trying to jam like a saxophone down your head. In hockey, you got people trying to jam <laughs> sticks on you and kill you. It doesn't happen very much in classical music, at least not the concerts that I go to. To be asking this, but uh, Charlie Huddy. So when I played in, in Europe, there was this video going around and I was on like three different teams where guys were talking about it. Charlie, like as you said, Charlie Huddy was unbelievable hockey player, unbelievable stats, coach ever like he's unreal but there's like it's, i think it's on youtube it might be called like charlie huddy blooper reel i don't know it's like eight minutes Has, have you seen this have you heard about no, this no, no? I never, oh I my god it, yeah. you need to go yeah. on youtube and watch it's like he was gross his stats were insane but this youtube reel that they they clip someone clipped together of him just like falling on his own or like missing the puck like it is absolutely hilarious and it is so funny so i'm just wondering if he knew of it or if you knew of it i i, so, I never heard of it he, and he's the kind of guy that he's such a humble guy he probably would have laughed if he would have seen it okay. and then as he's laughed and he'd probably go like this and he'd say one two three four <laughs> yeah, five exactly. five stanley cup rings and then he'd pick up the phone and wayne gretzky's calling him and sending him <laughs> bottles of scotch for christmas so he'd probably laugh at it that way too and yeah and, yeah you know if anybody's and, anybody's listening you know and you like old time hockey you just got to search that i don't know what it was but like three different teams i was on and guys were talking about it you know it's where these pigeons in europe playing and and, and watching this you know nhl 
else said just with but it's pretty funny so it was paul coffee's deep partner for like nine years or whatever yeah. it was so i think it worked, out, it worked out okay for him and he's totally. he such a such a good coach too like i learned so much just from watching him work with elite defensemen and then the guys who came into winnipeg that some of them never even had a chance to play in the American league and he treated them all the exact same way. So how he treated Dustin Bufflin versus how he treated a training camp invite that was never going to even probably make a paycheck playing hockey. It was the exact same way. That was like from Charlie, like, you know, I'm going to probably go look up that YouTube video after this uh, call, but that's what I learned from him. It's just the humility of a man who was coached, 1500 games played 1500 games has five cups and then to see how he dealt with everybody it was it was uh, and he's one of the funniest fun guys ever love him <laughs> love that guy that's that's unreal well you piqued my interest a little bit when you talked about jamie Compon and how he's like a power play wizard and and really good at working with with the skill players what's a little bit of his philosophy to to get the most out of some of those skilled guys um, because a lot of skilled guys are, are very different, but they're very similar as well in some of their makeups and, and some of their skill sets and stuff. So what was some of the things that you learned from him in, in dealing with some of the best players in the world at that position? Well, before I answer the question about Jamie, this is complete, utter freak occurrence. A, a text message just came onto my computer from Charlie Huddy. Send, <laughs> I swear to God, right now, just right now, send me a text about a inside joke we have about somebody on the jets like I, that's amazing that that happened because he's got fingers like dr pepper cans and it's too hard for him to text <laughs> anyway but for uh for jamie like jamie to me if and i hope he never listens to this if if i can grow up to be like jamie Compon, i'm going to consider myself a successful person i have never in my life ever seen anybody work like jamie Compon, ever this is a guy who has multiple Stanley Cups, who left the comfort of the NHL because he wanted to be a head coach and went to the Western League. And as a guy from Ontario, didn't know when, didn't know enough about the Western League. He had come and he was a GM and head coach of Portland. And just to see his constant evolution as a coach, it's an amazing thing. Like if I could listen to one guy present on a topic, he could be presenting to a topic to me about paint colors and I would be riveted because I know how much work would go into it. He is at the rink every day at five in the morning and is the last guy to leave. He beats everybody every day to the rink and nobody will ever be there longer than any equipment person, any rink staff. That's how he is. And he does it 365 days a year. And he's one of the best coaches I've ever seen. And for him to take the skilled players and be able to speak their language, but also to invest himself in learning about that language. So when a guy like Adam Oates would come and spend time with our star players and the players that Adam had uh, as his clients in Winnipeg, uh, and if he was going to meet them, for example, in Los Angeles, Jamie would go and spend time so he could learn that language, that vocabulary, and really to help the players that were Adam's clients on the jets. So of course it was going to help Jamie get smarter. And this is a guy who's been around forever. And if you could see even his skill there, like there was a story about him when he was, uh, he started off as a video coach in St. Louis and, and he was such a good player in such great shape. Even back then they had like multiple players sick and injuries and a snowstorm and they were going to sign him to play a game. And I think he was better than probably three of the D 
that they had in, in St. Louis's system. And he's in phenomenal shape. He works out two times a day, but he works his mind out by always getting better. I, I, he will never stop swimming. If that makes sense. He's like a shark and you don't ever see a shark that's full, right? Like he's constantly swimming against the current, constantly taking information and figuring out ways to implement that into his own players or the players that he's lucky enough to work with. I look at it the other way. I look at it as the players are lucky to work with him and, and seeing the way he took the development camp in Winnipeg and the, and the, the progression of players like Kyle Connor, progression of players like Jack Rosbeck, who's now in Columbus and Josh Morrissey, a defenseman and seeing how he took the most basic of skills that we would consider basics, how you meet a puck, how you roll a puck and cutbacks and, finding the next play, things that are now just naturally part of my lexicon and what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. They're all influenced for me from Jamie. I somehow got credit for a lot of that development camp stuff. And I will go on the record right now saying that I was just purely a passenger, like my whole life, just sitting there and sponging off a guy like Jamie Compon. So he, he is such a good coach, such a good man, such a good worker. So I hope when I grow up at some point, I can be like Jamie. That's really cool to have uh, have a mentor like that for sure. And one of the things that you said that I think is really interesting is is when you talked about he's able to speak their language, and I think that's really difficult as a coach because as co most of us as coaches were players at some point, and we had a certain role on a team that was a certain thing, and we thought a certain way about that role and how the game should be played, and yada 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 yada. And it's almost it's funny because Jeff and I have talked about this before. How a lot of times, you know, some of the star players when they get into coaching, they don't necessarily have a lot of success because they haven't spoken the language, if that's what we're talking about, of you know a lot of the other players on the teams. They just see things very very differently, and that's where you talk about a guy like Jamie who invests so much into learning and who invests so much into the relationships that he has with the players. So he's able to speak that language. I just think that's something that is so important for any coach or any leader that in, in any industry of what you're doing is being able to learn how to speak that language. And it's just, I liked how you put that because I think that's a great lesson for all of us to learn. Well, if you think about it, really one of the things we can talk about is skill, right? Like skill might be different to me, than it is to you, than it is to Jeff, for example. Yep. Every player at UVM was the best player on their team at some point. Every player in the NHL at some point was the best player on their team. And that you could say that across any platform of sports or anything that we're talking about. But when you get to the highest level, there's not enough room for everybody to be the best player. So you better be able to learn different skill sets or different habits. If you're going to be a four minute player a night in the NHL, you better learn how to be the best four minute player that you can be. And that's where Jamie comes in is that he's got an ability to work with the guys that maybe they played for the U S national team. And then now you're coming in and you're the rookie of the year in the American league, but you know what? You're not taking Blake Wheeler's job. You're not taking Patrick Lane's job when Patrick was there. What are you going to do to learn to be on the ice at critical moments? As a coach, our currency, it's ice time. So we want to be able to put somebody on the ice at critical moments. And we can't trust you on the half wall in the D zone if you can't get a puck off the boards when Chara's pinching down on you. You know, that, those are the habits you need to have. So Jamie can see 
years ahead for the players and saying, Hey, we, we know you're going to be a top six player, but right now you're playing nine minutes a night. And if you want to play 10 minutes a night, you better get this puck out of the D zone when Char is boiling down on you. So that's where I think, uh, you see elite coaches process things like that. Um, I think a lot of times you get a tendency of coaches who they're not really worried about the X percentage of guys who aren't part of the program. They only worry about the Y percentage of players who are part of the program. They worry about the best players where Jamie and I think great coaches, they take something for all the players and to make them each be their best, hoping that the nine minute player becomes a 13 minute player and, you see guys like Jack Rosvick, he's on the first line, second line when the Columbus game last night. So those are all from the work that gets done from guys like Jamie throughout the careers of all these players. And obviously at the end of the day, it's all the preparation disappears into the performance for the players. I was, I heard a movie director say that one time and I thought that was great. That's really was, interesting. Uh, yeah. I was uh, Todd Phillips, the director of the Joker was talking about Joaquin Phoenix and all preparation disappears into the performance. So we can give you as much preparation as you want, but as soon as that door opens up and you go out there, guess what? You got to get that puck off the glass and Char is going to jam down a stick down your throat. And it's your job to get that puck off the glass and out in the D zone. If you want to go back on the ice at an important time. I love that saying that I've never heard that before. That's really, really I'm a big cool. movie guy. So it's, you know, <laughs> that's, that's why that's really cool. Well, one of the things that's really interesting about your career is I feel like you've worn a lot of hats. You've been a video coach, how you started in Minnesota. You were a scout, you were a director of scouting, you were an assistant coach in the NHL. Now you're, um, you know, now you're a, uh, a head coach in, in the NCAA. Um, how, how, like, what did you take from your stops? Like, Cause everywhere along the way, like you, you take something different based on that role and based on the different uh, people that you're around. And, and I guess I want to start with, with at first as a video coach, because I really feel like my best education as a coach when it came to hockey stuff was when I was a volunteer video coach at Miami of Ohio university. And I was in charge of doing video and charting scoring chances, eventually doing the pre-scouts and then being an eye in the sky up in the press box, watching the game from up top. And it was always really interesting because I almost thought that I could script the plays. Like I knew what was going to happen based upon how we play based upon pre-scouting, <laughs> how the other team plays and all that kind of stuff. And I really just learned a lot about the X's and O's of the game of hockey as a video coach. And you got the chance to do that uh, at the NHL level in Minnesota for a guy like Jacques Lemaire, who is known for being an unbelievable hockey tactician. Um, so what, uh, I guess just kind of starting there, how was your experience as a video coach, especially under someone like Jacques Lemaire in Minnesota? And what did you take from it and learn from him? Well, we'd have to get a mini series like North and South to talk about <laughs> what I learned from Jacques and, and, and even still to this day, the the uh, impact he has on my life, when my phone lights up and it's Jacques, I will drop anything I'm doing and, and talk to him for as long as I can because uh, it was a PhD in coaching every single day. I had no business being there. I didn't know anything about video. I basically bluffed my way into that job and told them <laughs> that I knew how to run an Avid video machine and I... I just ran with it and every day was a scramble. And thankfully guys like Jacques Lemaire, Mario Tremblay and, and Mike Ramsey still to this day, three guys that I love talking to all the time, they had patience. But this was also before the role of the video coach really changed. So even at the start of this, Jeff was talking about, you know, the importance of sleep and sleep coaches. And, and you see how the game has evolved. 
in the eighties, they didn't even have strength coaches and they didn't have full-time goalie coaches. And it's coming into the nineties, the smart teams realized that you're going to have success spending outside the cap or outside the salary structure. So they started to get full-time goalie coaches. They started to get full-time strength coaches and then full-time video coaches. So when I came in, not every team had a full-time video coach and we were using VHS tapes. So we would have two VH deck, and this is from 2000 to 2004. I never saw one digital game in my life. <laughs> and it was a VHS tapes for four years, like cut, paste, rewind, put it over top. And with Jacques, that might be where I learned how to have fun because the meetings started to get stale. And if we had a winning uh, success from the night before, we would put in some highlights. And he asked me, he's like, uh, I don't know, be funny. Like the way that Jacques would talk. And I would like, I started doing crazy. I put in movie clips. I started doing voiceovers. I started like getting crazy people in the arena that worked. They would get them on camera and make fun of the players. Like it just kept going and going and going. And the pressure was high after four years to have fun, but he had so much fun and people don't know how funny he is, but I can tell you what I learned from Jacques. And this is something that I'll carry for me the rest of my time that I'm lucky enough to coach is that the players are always first always first if Jacques could never have been in a team photo he would have been the happiest guy in the world if the team photo of the Minnesota Wild was only the players Jacques would have been the most successful coach in his own mind because it should only be about the players everything was about what they need and he was only ever in front of the camera voluntarily when things weren't going well but when things were going really well like when we had the, the run in 03 to the final four he would step back and it was only about the players. And I thought that was great. And that's something that I took for him. My, my next stop was in Washington and that was Ovechkin's first year. And to see a guy like George McPhee, that's where my management uh, track started um, where I could see how George was building this team. And this was 2005, 2006. And they had been to the finals in 99 and hadn't had a ton of success. Then they drafted Ovechkin and the team was still, we didn't have a great amount of success early, but the vision of a guy like George and where he wanted that team to be, he was seeing that team nine years down the road. And Jeff would tell you from being in camp. And I remember him from camp there and he was the second guy in the strength testing after me, but it was the, the down the road <laughs> vision that he had of how he wanted to build that team. And I was amazed. And George is still one of the guys that I look up to and how he would run a team. And then from there, I was able to get to the Los Angeles Kings after a stint with the, uh, with the caps and their scouting department. And to see a man like Dean Lombardi, like the lessons I learned from him, first of all, it's you cannot be outworked. If you're outworked, you will no longer be part of this LA Kings staff. And that's where I think my true uh, work ethic, if I have any was developed was because of Dean, like Dean demanded it, but he did it himself too. And he was the first person I'd been around that encouraged us as staff and coaches and scouts to spend time outside of hockey. So he set us up with baseball teams. He set us up with NFL football teams, NBA basketball teams. Uh, he set up our uh, player development staff with like a Delta force training, all these things where he was such a forward thinker, but absolutely was the idea for me uh, that I learned from him anyway, was if you were outworked, you will not be part of this staff. And then 
I was able to bring that forward to Calgary where the, the fun aspect of things came back again. You're working with Brian Burke, like you're laughing 24 hours a day with Brian and Brad Trilliving, who people have no idea how funny he is, but also that same attention to detail too. And that the work always comes first, the team always comes first. And then, then from there, I was uh, fortunate enough to be put into the Jets. And, you know, we could do 95 million hours of podcasts from this stuff I learned day to day from Kevin Day off and obviously Paul Maurice and the rest of the people in that organization. Yeah. And it's really cool how you've been able to wear so many of those different hats and learn from so many of those different people and all those disciplines. And I'm wondering how you fit that all together now, because you as a coach in college, you're kind of like a GM and a head coach, right? Like you got to recruit and put the team together and set the vision. Um, and then you also got to coach, uh, as well. And, um, you know, I have to imagine from all of these stops, you've, you've learned some amazing things throughout the way. And, and one of the things I know you're friends with him too, but we've had him on the podcast and listening to Ryan Hardy talk about how he kind of sets the vision for the Chicago steel and what he did, you know, with the NTDT ntdp back in the day and one of the things that i think he and his staff does really well is they're all on the same page and everybody has the quote-unquote development plan and so the scouts and the coaches and you know everybody like you were talking about the accountants and (laughs) you know everybody's kind of all on the same page and has one goal and your philosophy kind of goes through everybody because i think you have and you've worked in the nhl for a long time and from my conversations a lot of times sometimes the the scouting staff isn't necessarily on the same page as the coaches and they're scouting a certain player in a certain way and maybe that doesn't streamline into a way that uh, a coach wants to play Um, and that happens in college it happens in juniors and for everybody to get on the same page is so important. So how have you found that transition using all of your experiences in all of those different roles to tie it all together where you're kind of doing it all as a, as a head coach in college? Well, what I've learned anyway, and it's more from people that were my bosses was that you have to delegate, but it's not even delegation. It's sharing responsibility. So at UVM, the staff I have, I think, is the best staff I've been around and for sure seen in college hockey. Now, of course, I'm going to believe that because I work with these guys every single day. And, and these are guys that I want in my foxhole when the bullets start flying and we were in tough times. I know that I'm going to look there and Jeff Hill's going to be there and Steve Wheeler and Mark Stewart, Mike Babcock, Eric Ellens, all these guys. I love them and I trust them. And I think they have the same trust in me as well. So I think that's the first thing is that you have to give your staff as much responsibility as they can take, as much as they want. Give them a voice early, give them a voice often, but also your players need to see that too. So our players need to see, you know, Steve Wheeler running this penalty kill. They need to see Jeff Hill running this power play. They need to see Mark Stewart running the practices and finding his voice as a coach. I think that's a big part of it, but then, if I can go back to the experiences I had in the NHL with management and coaches, the teams I find to have the most success are the ones that listen to the coaches. Because I know that with one phone call, we can call someone in the coaching fraternity and say, hey, you had player X, tell me about him. And then you're going to find out things that a lot of times other people can't find out because you've been in that same foxhole with that player down the road. And maybe it's something positive and maybe it's something negative, but that's a piece of the puzzle. Now the scouts, 
the scouts are uh, men and women who do such a hard job. I know so many people want to get into scouting. The first thing I'm going to tell you is you better like hotels and you better like watching crappy HBO on the TVs because you're never going to be home. You're always on the road. You're going to be eating Arby's all the time. And, you know, you're going to get a lot of miles in your car. It's a hard, hard job. And the difference between amateur scouting and pro scouting is very different. Amateur scouting, that's the the men and women you can think of that are driving from Sioux city all the way to like Indiana, you know, they're up to Detroit and then they're back down to Tennessee and then they're back over to Omaha or whatever it might be. The, the pro scouts are the ones that are solving the, the now, if we're making a trade for a player, you need to be right on that player right now. And I think that's where coaches can be used more is to be part of the pro scouting process in Winnipeg. They, we were always part of it. What do you know about this player, Todd? We we, we were going to make a trade with one of your 300 teams that you worked from before. And we're going to, you know, we know that, you know, somebody on that team, what can you tell us about this player? Or, you know, I think that's all part of it because it's not an exact science. Uh, you need to find out as much as you can. And it's not just from watching the player play. And it's not just from what the analytics say it's, is this person a good teammate? do you want to go to war with this player? Because at the end of the day, that's what you're doing 82 times a year. And then you're going to have to win 16 more in the playoffs. And you got to make sure that the guy next to you is going to take a punch to the face for you or a cross check to the teeth, whatever it might be, because that's the cost of winning. And that sometimes doesn't come across when you're just watching a player live or on TV, you need someone to have felt it inside that war with you. X is kind of just that just reminded me of your boy Trent Frederick. What was it yesterday or a couple days oh, yeah. ago taking on Tom Wilson and all of a sudden the Bruins win the hockey game? That was good. A quick backstory. I texted his mom the next morning and I'm like, how you doing? And she's like, God, I, I texted him before and I was just like, you know, if you have to fight, try not to fight, you know who. And they didn't even she didn't even say Tom Wilson. And then he he she told me that he texted her uh the the next morning and was like when I was in the penalty box, mom, I was thinking about you, like just that she was probably like scared and, you know, nervous and going nuts and, you know, yeah, he's killing it. What a good fight. That was awesome. I mean, and, and those are the moments that sometimes can turn around a game or turn around a playoff series, you know, turn that one around, turn that one around for sure. And, Hell, that and, can turn around a career. I yeah, mean, absolutely. you think about a guy like Trent Frederick, you know, a guy who's been up and down and, and all this kind of stuff. And now all of a sudden his team is losing. He goes out and he freaking fights Tom Wilson. All of a sudden the team wins the amount of respect he just got from, from his teammates. Now the coaches are like, Oh, we got to have this guy around. <laughs> it can change a, his entire career. <laughs> there wasn't a whistle after that fight for like nine minutes. So he took yeah. out one of their best players and probably the most intimidating player on the whole ice, let's be honest, for nine minutes out of a game where their team was losing. They come back and win that game. Like that is a massive swing that, that uh, you know, all pun intended, that, that he took uh, uh, to getting him out of the game. And, you know, like that, that was huge. That was huge. Think, I mean, you've been there, Jeff. Like, think, think of the fear that you, you have going into that. And, and I, I think, anyway, I've found coaches want to have players that have poise in different situations, right? Like, on the puck, there's very few players who are, like, uber-skilled people who can do unbelievable things, you know? It's a very small amount of players who are amazing with the puck. But off the puck, we're actually all the same. 
We can all defend hard. We can all have, find poise in those situations like, like Frederick did. That doesn't mean that everybody has to fight, but you have to have some confidence in the scrums. You have to have an experienced set of where to go that when things get bad, you have somewhere to go for it. Because the game, it's not always about who plays worse. It's about who plays best when things get worse, you know, and when things get harder. And that's where a guy like Frederick, like when he does that, like, you you know, it's like you sit on the bench and you're like, oh my God, like this guy just took four bombs to the head for me. What well, am I going to do? I mean, to get out there and get in. You look at their bench too. Like as soon as a face off went, like Wilson tried to, try to get him right away and he stepped back to square up yeah. with Wilson which is even more crazy that he was like no 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 I'm backing up we're squaring up at center ice like he did that on purpose Freddie is extremely tough uh, fought a ton of heavyweights last year in the AHL but as soon as those gloves dropped if you look at Boston's bench every guy on that bench shot straight up was like let's go because they all know that you know he's willing and he's tough and he's trying to make a name for himself and so it's very cool to see that bench reaction immediately even the game before they were talking about it, you know, so, and it, that, that's the resiliency you want in your team. The, the idea that we're going to stay in this fight. So even if Frederick would have got ragdolled, he would have still been in that fight. I guarantee you, he would have been standing up and taking one in the eye and then knocked down and standing up again. And that's the identity of your team. It's like some, some proverb from somewhere you get knocked down nine times. You got to get up 10 and that's what you want your team to be. So I, I thought it was great. Not that I'm sitting here advocating for a return to the Charlie Huddy days when there was 38 fights a, a, a period, you know. <laughs> but I think that when you stand up for your teammates in those situations, it might be something you remember from like four games ago. And I remember things too. I remember coaches that I play against now that when they're up on us four nothing, and all of a sudden they get a five on three power play in the third period and they're throwing out their A unit. Guess what? I'm going to remember that. I'm going to remember that for when we're in that same situation. So it's the same thing for a guy like Frederick, maybe, you know, when a year down the road, someone's going to challenge him on it for something that he did or Tom Wilson, I'm sure has got a lot of guys that want to come after him because the way he plays, I think he plays hard and I think he plays great. And I love the way he plays, but he's going to, he's one of the Kings of the jungle. He's going to have to do that all the time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, this has been awesome. Uh, Todd, the, the one last question I had for you again, goes back to wearing a lot of different hats and having the opportunity to, to get some great perspective about the game game of hockey in so many different ways. Um, you were a European scout for a little bit as well. And so got the chance to go overseas. I'm, I'm wondering what your learning process was like getting the chance to go over there. And, and obviously you've now been a coach with different European federations uh, as well. You mentioned Switzerland. I know you coach with Sweden as well. Um, what were some of the things that you took out of getting the chance to go across the pond and, and learn about hockey from, from their perspective? Well, well, think about it. I did the exact opposite of what we're asking those players to do. So I went and I lived in a culture that was completely foreign to my own. So if I wanted to learn how to order food, I had to learn how to do it in Swedish. Or if I was in Russia, I would have to learn how to do that in Russia. So th those were life-changing experiences for me. And that goes back to the whole Dean Lombardi idea that he felt that you were going to be outworked if you didn't know the players. So we had no expenses spared for us to fly up to meet somebody up in Shalaftia, Sweden, or, you know, if I needed to fly somewhere into Prague and to meet a player for dinner because Dean wanted to know, is this the kind of guy that you want to eat dinner with? Is this the kind of guy that you want to go to war with? And you can feel that often. And it might not be the first meeting. 
it might be five or six meetings down the road. And it was a pretty cool story that Dean would have it at the combine that if any player from your area, so my area was Europe, came into the combine, and if they didn't know you by name, you were going to be in trouble. And most likely, you wouldn't have a job working for the LA Kings. So I was so excited to be able to get to know all those guys and still see them to this day across a bench or, you know, on the ice, you got like Zabaniad or Tarasenko or Larshan and all these guys that you were, you were basically scouting Jonas Brodine, all these guys that you can still laugh with and smile with. And some of those guys, I was fortunate enough to coach in the world cup team uh, in Sweden or the world championship team in Sweden. And we would laugh like Brodine is one of the best examples because he had a body like an X-ray back in his draft year and now he's like a big man and like we would we would, we would joke about it and say hey you, you know you've changed you, you still have the same fashion sense with the red pants and green shoes but you know you have fun with them too but it's that that was a really cool thing that i know when i see those guys from that 91 1992 1993 draft year they still remember you so to me that's some uh you know, it's, it's a way of them saying, Hey, you did your job right. According to the rules set by my boss, Dean Lombardi. And if I was ever a GM, I would have the exact same rules. You better know that player. When that player comes in, he better say, Hey, Todd, how are you? Very cool. It's interesting. Like, so I was watching a, um, it was a ping. It's one of those all access shows. I don't know what they're called. They're on like NHL.com or whatever. And uh, I think it was Brian Dumoulin. They just had a kid. I think it was Brian Dumoulin. And I was thinking about like, as a coach, th- first of all, thinking about as a new dad, how absolutely insanely difficult it is to be a, a new, a new dad or a new parent and how coming to the rink to try and be an NHL hockey player after having a kid and being up all night and changing diapers and all that kind of stuff, like how difficult that can be. And it just goes to show you, and we've talked about it a lot on this podcast and you've mentioned it a ton of times, just the relationship side of things. Like as a coach, you know, you got to maybe treat a guy who's a new dad a little bit differently because they have some life stuff going on, you know, and uh, somebody's baby has got an earache at one in the morning and, and you know they're up all night and they come into practice and they have a morning skate where they're no good there might be a reason why I think that's where your assistant coaches come in too like you know the head coach might hey go see what's going on with uh you know number 18 over there and find out what why he was so well actually you know what is his daughter has got an earache at three in the morning last night he's been up for you know 16 hours straight so okay great send him home let's make sure his daughter gets taken care of whatever it might be yeah. Yeah. Get that a lot in college too, as I'm sure you'll, you'll get to Sometimes the, the kids get to the rink and you're like, you just see the look on their face and they're like, Oh, this is an exam wink. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, we, my... we, have, we have running jokes to those guys. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's exam week. Okay. It's the first week, first week of school. Yeah. It's exam week. Sure it is. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Todd, for coming on and, and talking some hockey and talking some some leadership stuff with us. Uh, your your journey has been just absolutely incredible and uh, wish you nothing but the best of luck there up in Burlington. Burlington is one of my favorite places of all time. Uh, I mean, if you hadn't got the chance to to, to get there, go. Um, I fell in love with it. I'm, I'm a kid from the Midwest and my first recruiting trip out East was to Vermont. And I remember flying into Burlington and seeing they're not really mountains, but they, they look like mountains to me being from somewhere in the Midwest and it's just absolutely beautiful right there on Lake Champlain and stuff. So, uh, gotta be, gotta be really excited. How excited are you for this journey now? Like now that you, you're at Vermont, you, obviously it's a, just a crappy situation with COVID and, and haven't been able to do the things that, 
you, you dreamed of doing uh, at first, but how, how's the experience been so far in year one? Well, the first thing is I checked your eligibility. You still have a year left. So if you want to come in and do one more year of plan for us, we can use you. Well, there's some funky stuff going on with yeah. uh, with some of these transfer rules and grad transfers and all that kind of stuff. So maybe. I'm going to check your grade. So that might be prohibitive for you. But <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, I don't know any different. That's what I guess to answer your question is that I, I don't have a different experience set as a head coach right now. It's I, I came in at a time when there was a lot of crazy things going on in the world. Uh, COVID, I got hired kind of right when COVID people were just figuring it out. Uh, George Floyd was going on. Uh, you know, we had so much uncertainty on the team in America, college sports, all these things. And and when you have great people around you, it makes things easier. So I was in a hiring process, uh, trying to move from uh, one state to another, all these things, but I think they make you stronger. And And anytime you get any kind of a a wound you get a scar and those scars are what builds character so I think all the lessons we've learned since April or whenever I got hired they're going to make for sure they're going to make me a better coach I hope every single day I'm getting better absolutely but I think this team and this program going forward we're trying to set you know a tone in this team that we never want to be lucky we are lucky because we're playing this game that's, again, for girls and boys to play. We're the luckiest people that we get to compete in this world right now when so much is going on. But when we get on the ice, we don't want to be lucky. We want to be prepared. And how we can prepare right now during these downtimes, that's the coaches. We can listen to podcasts. We can do pro different projects that we do, things that I learned in L.A. that I still do right now with our coaches and always trying to evolve and get better at our craft every single day. Hopefully that translates to the players becoming better too. So we're not going to rest. We're just going to keep going through this thing and, and be very fortunate, very happy that we get to play the games that we are playing. I feel terrible for the seniors, for the high school seniors that are looking to go to college. Uh, this is a, not a fun time to be somebody in that situation, young girl players, young boy players at the time of their life when they should be having the most fun. There's so many other things going on, but I also think there's people that are way worse off than we are right now. So just keep knocking on wood and saying, we're glad to be doing what we do. Amen. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for taking the time here today and I'm sure we'll be in touch in the future and uh, good luck to those catamounts here. In the rest Anytime, of the hockey gentlemen. schedule. Big Big fan of your guys' show. I'm a huge podcast guy. Big fan of your guys' show and been following both what you've been doing for so long. And it's nice to finally meet the guy that came second place to me in that testing back in Washington <laughs> way back in the day, Jeff. So, you know, I was actually probably the bar that they were strapping the 45s on each side for you to squat. So it's okay. It was nice the, to the talk to gentlemen. That was the x-ray. Nice to talk to gentlemen. Continued success to you. Thank you thanks, very much Doc. for having me on. Okay, thanks. <laughs>